people that are too popular have the ability to compel others to behavior. Which is what only a sovereign is supposed to be able to okay, do. Okay, 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 okay. So Hobbes is a nerd. Today is Lillian. Hi. Will. Yo. And Gil. Hello. So today we're going to be traveling back to the 17th century to take a look at a little book by Thomas Hobbes, which is called On the Citizen, or De Chive, or Kive, however you say it in Latin. It's a lesser known book than Leviathan, but but one which, speaking personally, is I find a riot to read, just because he's so much more loose than when he writes, uh, you know, than when he writes Leviathan, the big boy. Now, this might be because, as he, as he admits in the preface, which he wrote a few years later, that he felt pressed by what was transpiring around him, the build-up to the, to the civil wars in England. So he packed up, fled, fled to safety in France, and quickly wrote this book. The preoccupations of the book really reflect that context, I think, and I want to have us discuss the concepts of sedition, and especially faction, and how governments are supposed to suppress them. Conservatives really like to claim Hobbes as one of their own, especially in like international relations. They like the idea that there shouldn't be any kind of international overarching body, um, and the idea that you know states relate to one another like it's a war of all against all. They also like the kind of pessimistic anthropology that human beings are like ineluctably selfish and violent towards one another and basically need to be kept in check by authoritarian state powers. They like all that You're stuff. You're making but, the conservatives um, sound uh, real good, man. <laughs> 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 Am I wrong? No, uh, no, but that's it. But uh, I actually think that there's there's good stuff in Hobbes for the left to read too, especially in his kind of anxieties about the things that threaten state power, right? So mm-hmm. and the things that you know the things that frighten him about what he calls the multitude, right? The governed populace. But the book actually opens with Hobbes trashing Aristotle and the idea that humans are zoon politicon or political animals. He compares humans very unfavorably to bees and ants <laughs> who seem to naturally produce a harmonious community. Humans, by contrast, seem to need something more than nature to achieve unity. We need subjection to a common authority. So I guess I wanted to start by asking about the, that part of Hobbes that we usually associate with him, that kind of pessimistic anthropology. And, but to maybe frame it a little bit differently, the view that like human association the view of human association, which says that we can't rely on cooperation or something like power with to build genuinely collective entities, mm. but we need to institute hierarchy or power over in order to actually build any kind of unified groups. Mm. And I think that's a question that, you know, I think that's a question that's actually, I think, quite relevant to the left. And just ask a tanky. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so is that the name of this episode? Is the Owen woke up and chose violence today? He's taking all comers. Okay, all right. He's in this war of all against all. All That's what Hobbes does to you. So to be clear, the justification for why we need subjection to sort ourselves out politically is because we are not like 
bees or ants were something else. <laughs> well, like what he says about bee colonies of bees is that the will of each individual bee doesn't come into contradiction <laughs> with the will of the whole of the bee colony. There's like an immediate harmony between them. Right. So what the bee just naturally that wants rocks. for themselves is what's good for the whole. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And yeah. so that would be great if humans were like that. But unfortunately, manifestly not the case. They're not. And conservatives <laughs> so like, think yeah, manifestly the not like that. that. Right. Like conservatives, yeah, conservatives think, think that left, we yeah. think that people are like bees. Are like bees. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and Hobbes is like, no, we need we can't rely on nature. Right. For any kind of unity or group formations amongst humans. Right. We nature's not enough. And so we need artifice. Like we have to mm. build structures on top of our kind of natural proclivities in order to kind of keep them in check, suppress them. To stay with the nature thing real quick. Am I remembering wrong? But isn't Hobbes the one who says something like, yo, man is a wolf to man? Does, does that come yeah, from Hobbes? Homo I, hominy lupus. Yeah. I, I love Hobbes and all this animal stuff. So we're not, for Hobbes, we're not <laughs> bees or ants. We are goddamn lone wolves. Wait, doesn't yeah, he exactly. also call us and like we're mushrooms also at one point? Yes, oh, yeah. the mushroom the thing killed true, me. That was mushrooms, so gods, funny. and wolves. Okay, is that a different yeah. point? Because we can come back to us being <laughs> mushroom wolves. I feel like that must be a different point. That was well, you know, the rest part. of the expression, like man is a wolf to man, is that man is a god to man, right? And yes. so the, the two kind of go together. And because man is a wolf to man, we are so naturally kind of violent and conflictual in relation to one another. We have to become gods to one another. We need to build, you know, that's what he calls Leviathan, right? A mortal uh -huh. god. We need to build hierarchical structures in which we basically set up artificial gods above, um, you know, above the kind of human community in order for any kind of real unity to be engendered. Well, one of the things that's super interesting in that, I guess one of the questions we could ask is like, where does this anthropology come from? Like what grounds this anthropology? Mm -hmm. um, because so much of the sort of political argument requires that we buy into some of these basic premises about what human beings are like. Um, but one of the things that jumped out at me when I was reading this text this time was that he says that the condition of, of the state of nature, right, which he also calls the state of war, is a condition where there's like perfect equality, actually. Yeah. Um, and that there's uh, inequality between human beings is a civil condition. That's something that's established in the civil state, but is not something that meaningfully can be said to exist in the state of nature. So we have this idea that everyone is at least powerful enough to kill anyone else. And this is like a, yeah. Go you gotta love his begrudging admission of human equality, right? It's like, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be great if you, there were natural hierarchies amongst humans so we could just have fucking order? But yeah, instead, we the bees. instead, we're so goddamn equal, which for him means anyone can kill anyone, right? Yeah, right. The weakest can kill the strongest, either through he says secret machinations Tools. or through confederacy with others. Yeah. Because we do have natural equality, we have to build it. Uh, inequality artificially in order to get peace, which I just think is an incredible that you know he's just so fucking pissed about how <laughs> equal humans are, right? Because there's a disintegration, right, of the yeah. of the state of the sovereign in England. Mm -hmm. um, does he mm -hmm. have the? I thought he had this idea. So there's natural equality, but he also mm -hmm. talks about natural law, right? And that seemed important. What is the natural mm -hmm. law in relation to natural equality? Because he thinks that's not sufficient, right? He makes this distinction between natural right and natural law. Mm -hmm. um, and both of those things we kind of can access through reason in nature, right? Natural right is just literally the one right we possess when we're in the state of nature. The right to, e the right to all things. To everything, you can, yeah. 
take everything, kill anyone, whatever. It's the right to all things by any means, you know, any means you choose um, to pursue them. The law of nature says if you keep living by that right of nature, you're not going to fucking live very long. Like you might win today. You might steal from that neighbor or kill that, you know, group up with some others and go kill you know, the people in the, in the next town over, but they're going to come back the next day and they're going to have a bigger group and you're going to get killed. So the law of nature says you should lay down that right of nature. You should get everybody together and just come to an agreement that we're not going to exercise this natural right we have when there is no state, right, to just kind of do as we please. And we should, uh, we should pursue what he call it. He says we should pursue peace, right? So the way he describes pe- um, the law of nature is he says it dictates seek peace, and follow it, right? So the way to seek peace, make some agreements with people, not just any old agreements, but agreements to set up somebody over all of you to keep y'all in check, you know? Yeah, so just to like zoom out, you know, real quick to to see, you know, why um, one might say Hobbes would be um, a strange fit for the liberal tradition or the Western tradition, is he does not think that when we come together in political groups, you know, the the Zoan Politicon, we do that because human beings are are, um, uh, naturally and impulsively social. He thinks Mm -hmm. that, you know, we come together in groups (laughs) because we don't have really much of another fucking choice. That, you know, what civil society is is actually what's keeping our baser natures at bay. It is not, you know, out of love of the other, love of good drinking wine with people. Maybe that will happen. But what he takes it to be is that most of us, if we could, we go it alone. You know, if we could and we had the you know, the guarantee that our lives would not be that famous, quote, nasty, short, brutish, yada, 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 we would do that. And so the, the state isn't actually a reflection of our, our natural nature. The state is a reflection of a second nature that we realize we have to do because, mm. damn, it kind of actually sucks out here with everyone taking whatever they want. Is that <laughs> is that about right? Yeah, the yeah the uh, the like anti-Aristotelian thing is so funny because like he thinks that human beings are like fundamentally unsociable. Yeah, they're like anti-social creatures. In fact, and th- so I was losing it la- in like this first chapter or two, where he's talking about what it looks like in society when human beings get together for fun. Looks like and social like, media. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it looks so like good. fucking social media. He's like talking about like Twitter and like getting together yeah. with getting together with your friends and just like dunking on the people who aren't there. He's like, <laughs> he's like, what do people like to do? Like what actually look at them when they get together? Do they love society? No, they love shitting on the people that they don't like who aren't there to defend themselves. And they love that. Yeah. And because of that, one always tries to be the last person to leave the party yes. because they know it'll <laughs> be their turn once they knows. exit the room. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, he includes philosophers in this very explicitly, right? Look at what he says. He goes, philosophers, look at their gatherings. He's like, everybody just lectures everyone else. In fact, everyone wants to be thought a master. Otherwise, not only do they fail, like other men, to love their companions, they actively pursue their resentments against them. (laughs) This does feel like philosophy parties to me. 100%. 100%. Oh, for sure. 100%. Yeah. I love, I mean, this is why I love them because I'm really good at dominating others and, and discourse. So I have great time at philosophy parties. Yeah, but that's why, but the, hold on. That's, <laughs> uh, that actually is a good bridge to what I was going to add to what Will said um, about the reasons why, even though we don't, we're not very naturally social, why we do come together. It, it is true that we have needs, right, that we can't meet on our own. But he also says that 
we have like ego needs that we can't yeah. meet on our own. And so Glory. we like to have like a high esteem of ourselves, a high image of ourselves, and we can't do that on our own. And so we have to go to philosophy parties. You have to go, you know, you have to get on social media, even though it's totally anti for totally antisocial reasons. You have to get on there, though, in order to fulfill that kind of second desire beside your material desires, which is your, you know, your desire for to have great esteem and to be esteemed by others. Vainglory, <laughs> he calls it. Yeah, vain, so, yeah. Okay, yeah. so Hobbes is like keeping it really real. Um, Extremely real. Yeah, exactly. Thomas. He's really, okay. Thomas keeps it real. So I, so I also kind Thomas. of want to zoom out because this is a, a lot of this one um, learns, right, when you for, take your first like social and political philosophy course. And if you've taken any like political theory course, you'll read that like 20 pages with the nasty brutish and short thing mm -hmm. and that's why we need a commonwealth for these reasons, mm -hmm. but you learn that first in a little less detail. But I, but I want to second what Will said, which is why is it that this seems kind of awkwardly put into the like Western canon of political mm -hmm. philosophy, but like also makes total sense? What is its mm -hmm. kind of broader relevance? I'll take a, a crack at that. Uh, and you all obviously, you know, follow up if uh, the way that I think about it is it, it's awkwardly positioned because altogether it seems to cut against, you know, this sort of rosy uh, humanism uh, that, you know, I think what people imagine the Enlightenment Western tradition shows is that, you know, we are naturally progressing towards peace. We have, you know, a love of peace, not because of undue force and coercion, but this is what, you know, human reason would do, you know, unfettered. On the other hand, this also justifies the notion of, but we do need coercion. Like some mm -hmm. people, some people by that, I mean, those who will be subjected need to be brought to heal. And so it also authorizes this understanding of it offers a rosy picture. Let's say this. Let me put it this way. A rosy picture of the individual that Hobbes does not offer. You know, the, the mm. Western tradition has of, you know, you know, if left to our own devices, we do da, 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 da. But they love this pernicious picture Hobbes has of the collective that, you know, when brought mm -hmm. to groups, that's when you need coercion. That's when you need, because that is not going to be natural social progress. That's when we need to understand, no, 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 no. If we could have it any other way, we wouldn't do this. And so that I see that as why, you know, he's like this weird ill fit. It's a contradiction of he makes sense in the Western tradition, but also he does cut against, you know, some of its, uh, what I take to be some of its core premises about, mm -hmm. you know, progress and human nature, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's actually what's going on in that what seems like just a pure kind of philosophical anthropology is that what he's doing is that he's trying to problematize group attachments and forms of collective bonds. He's trying to individualize the subject of the Commonwealth to turn basically mm -hmm. to build a kind of architecture of the body politic, which has two poles, right? It has the state kind of whole and its constituent parts are individuals. Right. Where's the kind of yeah. where's the kind of atomic individual, atomistic individuals, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the kind of medieval vision is a set of concentric rings of various communities that have certain amount of authority ascribed to them, uh, have the right to kind of dictate certain elements of daily life, and you know, power is kind of shared through this kind of, like I said, these kind of concentric rings of levels of community. And he's like, no, 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 all of that for me just spells civil war. 
Right. You can't like for him that spells disorder for him, right? That if you have robust communal ties, then you have a kind of launch pad, right, from which to leverage collective claims of power. So mm -hmm. I think that 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 for me is how one of the, the one of the ways that he's situated in, even though he does cut against it in a lot of ways, situated in that kind of liberal tradition, is I think he's trying to kind of construct the maximally governable, serialized, individualized subject who mm. has been totally disattached from their political and social connections. Right, so, and, okay, that's really good. And I think it gets, I can from there get to something that I was hoping we'd be able to talk about, which is that, like, a fundamental idea in this construction that he's giving us is that sovereignty or sovereign authority has to be, like, indivisible, completely indivisible. Mm -hmm. Maybe at some point we could do a series on the concept of sovereignty as it sort of develops because it's also very sort of central to so much of this like political theory and it's and it's uh, in this discourse. But I don't know. Could you talk about why that's the why, why is that the case, right? Why does sovereignty need to be indivisible and like from that idea that it has to be? What sort of consequences follow? Because he's got a lot of a lot a lot actually comes out of that. It seems to me. Yeah. Well. If like subjection is what brings us together, is the only thing that he thinks can actually bring us together, but we have to actually subject ourselves to a kind of common power in order to be unified. Can I just jump in just to be clear? Yeah. Not just bring us together, but you know, hold us together. Because one could hold make the argument yeah, right. that you know you need subjection to get the thing up and running, but then it becomes mutually reinforcing. You know, right. that, no, you that's know, a great point. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like I don't think that that's what Hobbes thinks. Like you know, the sovereign brings us together, and then the sovereign can be like, okay. Now y'all see it's good, <laughs> so I'm going to step away, yeah. right? No, that's how he distinguishes between factions and, you know, sovereign bodies politic, right? Factions are just kind of groups that come together at a given moment because they happen to share similar goals or something. But he goes, watch out. Look how tenuous these are. Like, they're going to fall apart, and you're going to start killing each other real soon. Factions will form inside of the factions, and it's going to be a huge disaster, right? So so it's true. Yeah, the argument is, is this is what can actually... You know, that does uh, sound familiar from experience. Has left politics ever experienced anything like that before? Unity? <laughs> the, the joke is, I feel like, isn't that the history of left politics? Well, I do right. laugh sometimes. Factionalism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But so the one, so when it comes to sovereignty, what I'm interested in is also that, is there a normative basis for this besides just these, like, these needs that we have, like, just like, because part of the reason that I was asking about where he fits into the Western philosophical, like the political tradition, is that it's the beginning of a sort of social contract theory. That's mm -hmm. what I feel like people usually teach about Hobbes. But when I was reading the chapters that you sent us, Owen, I was like, I'm not actually sure. Like, this isn't a contract in the sense that I'm actually used to by reading like later social contract theory, where mm -hmm. they try to tell me for what normative reasons I should be interested in forming this contract with other humans. I feel like Hobbes was just telling me that like, I must like, I really mm -hmm. like, otherwise I'm fucked. I always found that to, I agree with you entirely Lillian. And I always found that that jumped out whenever I taught Hobbes and then like Leviathan, but also here, it's weird that like the things that he says lead us to enter this so-called contract are the laws of nature, right? And like it seems to me like peculiar to say that something that follows from the laws of nature would be like 
a choice, a deliberation, or like, you know, something artificially agreed upon. It sort of seems like, no, it follows with the force of necessity that's proper to natural laws. Because, and, and it all comes fundamentally down to like the, the normative ground, if there is one, is like, well, without this, you'll fucking die. Like, you'll have no security or stability whatsoever. And like, so this is where you have to go. But it is weird then to talk about that as a contract. I agree. But also, um, so when I when I taught taught Hobbes a couple of years ago, what I realized is, oh, that seems to be what's actually really radical about Hobbes. If you're paying attention, it starts to become clear there isn't much room for God here. There isn't much room mm-hmm. for God as an arbiter of justice. That you know, mm. this is a deeply you know, um, I would think of it this way: if there's a contract, it's you know, from almost imminent propulsion of material needs and material necessity. Mm-hmm. That, you know, mm-hmm. nowhere does, you know, in Hobbes' state of nature is he talking about, and God has, you know, these commandments and these decrees. He's like, <laughs> murder? I mean, yeah, if you gotta. Like, you know, <laughs> well, what do you think this is? And so, so what so did is, you think this you know, is? Yeah. yeah, like, you know, get your mind right. Get it straight. And so, you know, what Hobbes is giving us is if the normativity does not descend from above, from the realm of ideas, normativity mm. emerges from what we have to do in order mm-hmm. to make it, what we have to do in order for there to be some stability. And so you can see, you know, um, a, you can call it pessimism or realism here, where I think for Hobbes, he'd say, you can come up with all of these nice, fancy arguments about what ought to be, but eventually you're going to have to you know, deal with what is. You know, the necessity mm-hmm. of what material reality is, of what nature is, etc. And other thinkers, you know, before and after him, they don't take that view. You know, there's mm-hmm. room in yeah. Locke for God. Um, oh, yeah. Rousseau definitely, you know, seems to have a different view of human nature. But, but <laughs> we don't need to get into all that because I don't know what yeah, he's doing with the state of nature. Rousseau uh, is in his own. It is own. Maybe one way of distinguishing them is that, like, Hobbes doesn't believe that there is any kind of binding, or I don't think, of um, there's any kind of binding moral normativity. But what exists is political normativity. And the only thing you can really rely on, the only thing that has any kind of genuine effect in the world are political norms. And so, and in order to have like political norms, you have to build a state. And by norms, just to clarify, we're talking about like when we say how something like ought to be, like some idea of living a good life with other people or respecting right. other people's rights and we justify that to each other. Or like constraining behavior. Yeah. yeah. Reasons why you yeah. should... Constrained behavior. Yeah. Constrained behavior. So there's no reason to constrain behavior for Hobbes except for political mm-hmm. reasons. One of the interesting, like, c- coming back to my question about, like, just how far the right, the, like, the power of the sovereign extends. Like, he says, like, things that sound, I mean, like, wildly illiberal, right? Like, he says things like <laughs> that, like, it falls to the sovereign to determine, like, what right and wrong is. Because that doesn't exist in the state of nature. That's something that we get only in the civil state. Mm-hmm. Which also means that, like, the sovereign has the authority to adjudicate over, like, what counts as right and wrong in like a normative sense, but also in a descriptive sense. Like the the sovereign has the power to determine what counts as good and what counts as bad. The first thing, so one of the chapters that you had us look at was chapter 12, which is on the dissolution, the causes of dissolution of commonwealths. And he's like, I'm going to lay out a bunch of doctrines, basically ideas that when people hold them, tend to create sedition, tend to like undermine the stability of the Commonwealth. And he's like, opinion number one that is problematic that no one's allowed to have, 
people can judge for themselves. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but the minute you think that you can judge what's right and wrong, you're saying I have an authority here and that means that the sovereign does not. And so like that has to be squashed like at the first I mean, sign the first side of it. In some ways that's not that surprising. I mean, though his because don't we you know, in his account is that when we enter a civil society, we transfer the right yeah. to, to to be the, our own judges. Yep. But I mean, mm -hmm. isn't that also just part of what it means to live in a state? Like, I have to answer to actual judges. Like, I don't get to be judge in my own case. I've transferred away the right to be to adjudicate mm -hmm. my own case when it comes to when if I've been accused of something, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, and he does. This is where maybe some of the liberalism or proto-liberalism like comes in is that he does kind of like carve out a very small, admittedly, extremely small <laughs> space for what he calls the liberties of subjects. Right? But like, you get as the a sense general he's like, structure, if I must. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a treat, have a little liberty yeah. as a treat. Yeah, exa exactly. But okay, we might say that in the liberal state, that sphere is much bigger than in the kind of Hobbesian proto-authoritarian state or something. But the structure isn't really that different, I don't think. What I find very fascinating with what's going on with Hobbes here. It's not just you know, the the arguments Hobbes himself is making, but how Hobbes has has traveled the certain presuppositions about what is desirable and what is possible is that you know Hobbes also sort of operates as you know a kind of limitation on uh, political imagination. And so mm. what I, I mean by that is the type of argument that Hobbes is giving is if he is right, about this nature of ours. Then when you know some lefty comes along is like, what if actually we could govern ourselves? What if actually you know we're able to constitute groups of mutual aid and you know decision making? Someone like Hobbes will say, Are you kidding me? So you're just gonna feel split that way sovereignty up sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, this is what it's like. Twitter out, is man. the state of war. Yeah. Oh, for it's sure. Sorry, combat. I interrupted okay. you well, but just no, to, no, just no. To like, make that that's point really again. hard because, yeah, as you all you know, said already, like, you know, when Hobbes talked about going to a party and what do you spend most of your time doing at the party? Talking about the people aren't there. It's like, oh man, that seems right. But, you know, before we like, you know, go all the way, I do want to put, you know, one thing on the table. Making a state of nature argument is really weird in political philosophy. There's a long tradition of it, but. Where is Hobbes actually getting this data from? And I, you know, I don't want to like you know, yeah. delve into other you know, philosophers' critiques of the state of nature because, again, we're not doing Rousseau or Locke or anything like that. But I, I want us to just sit with the, the fact that a lot of this, for this to work, it cannot just be Hobbes's mind. There has to be something true about what he's saying about the state of nature. Mm -hmm. And let me be very clear why I'm bringing that up. Who has ever seen the state of nature? He says, okay, yeah, he, he says in one of these in one of these chapters, he's like, you've all seen the state of nature whenever like the sort of bonds of sociality start to dissolve at all, right? Like, that's interesting. And like the fact that, like, for, he says, first of all, we see it in international relations where there is no common pact, really. And he says, and it's an amazing mm -hmm. line. If you give me one second, I'll find it. Um, in the chapter 13, where he says, the state of commonwealths towards each other is a natural state, i.e. a state of hostility. Even when the fighting between them stops, it should not be called peace, but an intermission 
during which each watches the motion and aspect of its enemy and gauges its security, not on the basis of agreements, but by the strength and designs of the adversary. He's like, you've all seen the state of war, the state of nature. It's called the way that states relate to each other, like still. And there's no possibility, he thinks, and this is an interesting question, right? Like whether or not there could be anything like a unified global sovereignty or something like that. It seems like he kind of rules that out, but it's unclear kind of why to me at least. Yeah, and he gives he gives one other example, you know, because I, in some ways you could just say that England's the dissolution of a kind of common authority during the English civil wars is an example of the state of nature uh, of England falling back into the state of nature for him, but he does give an example of just what the vision of the state of nature in its kind of pure anarchy, in his view, right, is, and he gives it in this book later on, I can't remember later on in the text, but also in Leviathan. And his example is the Americas. Right? Yeah. He says, and, he, and both times he just says it in <laughs> passing, right? And so yeah. this is 1642 when, 1642 when he writes this. Yeah, his example of, if you want to see what just a kind of pure anarchic state of nature looks like, in which he says there's just only the government of families, like there's only basically kinship. Obviously he doesn't know anything. Like he doesn't know shit about, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> about what about what the Americans are like, right? Not at all. But his projection fantasy of the state of nature, I think, at its most phantasmatic, is that colonial projection. Locke has that too. Yeah, yeah. Locke's God. I hate John Locke so much. I don't know if we need to get whatever. <laughs> I think Hobbes has way more redeeming way more redeeming qualities than than Locke. I oh, I say. agree. Yeah. No, I just think Locke's a bad thinker. I, the one thing I'll say about Locke, just real quick, because it's very funny, is that whenever he talks about the state of nature, he talks about people eating acorns. <laughs> Because he's an idiot. All right. But uh, I had a question, though, um, and I'm wondering, like, what you all think about this. Because it seems like, so all of the, like, totally intense, like, authoritarian measures that he, he encourages us to set up about the indivisibility of sovereignty. They have the right to judge for us. We give up the right to everything. Transfer all of our rights to the sovereign and so forth. Is because the state of war, or the state of nature, is looming at every moment. Mm -hmm. for him in the civil state and it seems like you know he's and, and again like he's just seen the english civil war the 30 years war and just like the complete collapse of anything like uh social stability so it sort of makes sense kind of biographically and historically that he would have swung the pendulum so far in the other direction but like the question i want to ask is like do we ever actually leave the state of nature or the state of war for hobbes because it seems like it's with us all the time and he even says things like the commonwealth preserves for itself the right of war against dissenters right like someone who dissents from what the sovereign says is right or wrong it's like well we kill that asshole and so like that sort of right of of war of violence you know the, the sword of justice as he calls it like that still looks a little bit like the state of war to me and i'm wondering like whether you all think that there's like a meaningful difference what i find fascinating thinking about this is i was i was right on that track with you that you know the version of the state that hobbes constructs here if i can be slightly psychoanalytic is a state that is always paranoid it's paranoid mm -hmm. because the state mm -hmm. of nature is always around the corner. Mm 
that it turns out there is no actually you know expunging the state of nature from uh, human politics. It's always threatening to break up, to emerge again. So war can never really be over because what you're at war with is you know the um, the explosion or the dissolution that's the, the state of nature brings. But you know that leads me to realizing that what's fascinating is if in the state of nature we're we're equal, and this is a really weird thing. I think most of us in 2021, equality, that's that dope thing. That's that thing we want. <laughs> but no, the state isn't there to guarantee equality. The state is there right. to guarantee inequality. Yeah. This is a massive reverse light thing from how we normally, or most of us normally think about what the state is supposed to be doing. And so when people of a more leftist orientation come around and say, you know, the state should um, you know, make us more equal, more equitable, I think you can point to Hobbes and see why there's such terror about like things mm. like the French Revolution to try to bring about a, 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 mm. a mode of sociality of um, you know absolute equality, and so mm. you know it seems to me you know for Hobbes that you know the state of nature never goes away. It's just this haunting, horrifying reality that's always at the edges of, of the polity that must mm -hmm. be kept at bay. That's threatening to level everything and making everyone into once again a social equal human beings the only way to do that is through inequality to keep that bay mm -hmm. and it seems like through hierarchy like this yeah. is an argument for a normative political normative argument for why there must be hierarchy i mean i think that's right he wrote a he wrote a book um a kind of di historical dialogue about the english civil wars later in life and he called it behemoth and in some ways, like Behemoth represents this kind of figure of this fractious multitude, which is always threatening to plunge civil society back into civil war. It's kind of original, um, original state. And so the picture you get is one of not just of Leviathan, but it's like Leviathan versus Behemoth. It's mm -hmm. this constant battle of the kind of forces of order and hierarchy against the anarchic forces of faction and of, and of civil war. But I, one, the question that, whenever I think about that, the question that comes to my mind, though, is about this kind of paranoia, is times where it doesn't seem like there is, you know, amongst those in power, a whole lot of paranoia. Like, this, like the machine seems to be working extremely well, and it'll even permit, will give a certain amount of latitude to resistance, a certain amount mm -hmm. of latitude to protest, to assembly, mm. because there is a sense in which the forces of behemoth are pretty attenuated right now. Mm. And so we can afford to allow them to blow off some steam, you know, in a, in a few protests, you know, in mm. some ways, maybe Foucault is right. And like, we've, we've created docile bodies, the kind of docile bodies that the most governable subjects possible that Hobbes could have only dreamed of, but he was stuck in a kind of purely sovereign state way of thinking about power, like just laws. Right. So he wasn't thinking about how do you, how do you actually manufacture these governable subjects? Right. He, he's just thinking about how do you scare them into submission? <laughs> right. Like, so if they just, if they mess up and they go a little too far, you just like pull them apart. Yeah, right? exactly. It's, yeah. it's All reactive in a certain way. What's fascinating is like, yeah, what maybe what Hobbes couldn't have, have dreamed of is that we would really internalize the state not as you know, what's you know, scaring us, but as as something that's natural. That you know, uh, almost you know, on on Hobbes's anthropology, that you know, it would be possible for us to forget our human nature. That you mm. know, this isn't really what we want. It is simply what we what we need. And 
mm-hmm. think that, that that that's fascinating because I think you know, uh, you know, and it makes sense, you know, biographically why Hobbes would think this. That Hobbes couldn't imagine that that sort of um, the rebelliousness of nature could really be rendered docile and domesticated yeah. to such an extent that it's not just the state sword that's doing the work. It is actually self-articulating habits of, mm. of, of engaging one another, of uh, a vision of social life that is you know, keeping the state of nature at bay. Yeah, that's what Charles Mills argues in um, pretty much in this essay called Bodies and Politic, uh, in which he says, you know, Hobbes makes this really strict division between our natural selves, our na- ourselves as natural individuals, and then the kind of artificial bodies politic and the artificial mm-hmm. civil societies that we create and what he was lacking and you can even see it in his work that he's kind of straining towards it but doesn't have a concept of it yet what he's lacking is an account of how it is that our human artifice goes to work on our nat- our mm. so-called natural selves right on our so-called kind of natural proclivities our habits and creates you know like a second nature so mm. this is like i feel like he's the guy before Locke that like Nietzsche would have looked at him and been like, see, there's no doer behind the deed. (laughs) This is just, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like this is like whatever like bad conscience in which like you start to work on yourself to like be a member of the state to start feeling like you have these duties and associations. That's not there yet. And it would Mm -hmm. only come and it would come around henceforth. Yeah. So then, yeah, that's great. So then like what we start to see yeah, the, the sort of thing that he almost understands but doesn't is that the, even even the natural being has an artificial character. Yeah, what's fascinating is you know there is a way of of reading Hobbes the, that forces us to ask: Is the state of nature empirically real, or mm-hmm. is it you know uh, a fact that's actually engendered by this agonistic, paranoid sovereign that you know is constantly reacting to this thing that it imagines you know what's um, always waiting around the corner. You know, I think that there'd be an interesting way of, of reading Hobbes that the anthropology he, he gives is something that actually emerges, obviously it emerges after there have already been states, after there's already been some sort of sovereignty, mm-hmm. that, you know, it seems as if, you know, maybe it creates its own contradictions, it creates its nice. own mm-hmm. threats of, yeah. uh, of dissolution that need to be tamed. And if that's the case, then we're, we're asking the question of, so is the state, you know, sort of guarding and keeping at bay this human nature? Or is it creating these crises for itself that, mm-hmm. you know, all together Great also question. legitimizes its, right. you know, its you know, authorization of inequality and hierarchy? You know, and I, I, I think maybe we know where Hobbes falls on that, but is it that clear? I'll, I'll defer to Owen. If you know, does Hobbes really believe his anthropology, or is Hobbes making an argument that you know, in other words, you know, this is what we're going to have to actually think if this is going to mm-hmm. work? Yeah, I mean, I I read the the stuff about the state of nature less as a kind of actual attempt at anthropology or kind of philosophical anthropology, and more as a preparatory argument against certain kinds of sociality within civil society, okay. right? Mm. Like he wants to undermine, I think he's con- what's constantly at issue for him is the need, to, the need to undermine the appeal of any other kinds of group formations or political <laughs> affiliations or any attachments no at all. Really. Yeah, <laughs> no book exactly. clubs. Yeah, exactly. Because his, his, gra- his greatest fear is that, what's gonna, is that what, ha- like what happens in a commonwealth is that you get what he calls a commonwealth within a commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Right, you get a civitas in civitate, a kind of 
a group entity which becomes so binding for the people that are a part of it that they effectively answer to it more than they answer to the state. Right. right? And is that a faction? That's a faction. Yeah, a faction is a commonwealth within a commonwealth uh, in his uh, in his language. And so I think I read the argument about the state of nature, or what interests me about it the most is not how it's not its anthropological accuracy, but its mm. almost strategic value for <laughs> an, an an argument against permitting certain modes of association and the strength of certain associative bonds within the commonwealth. He also knows that we can't like outlaw these group formations entirely mm -hmm. but then like so we get these like so he distinguishes in a couple of places between like a crowd or a multitudo and a commonwealth proper right which has to do with that's my favorite part of the book yeah i want to hear you talk a little bit about it because i think it's very interesting and, and a little bit tricky but it has to do with like the degree of unification i think or like the kind of unity of of an act or of a will right and he says that like a commonwealth because it's properly unified, it's not a heap, right? It's not just like a bunch of people <laughs> kind of just hanging out. You can attribute acts to it, right? You can say that it's a people. It's a people. A people can have a will, um, which does things. Whereas, like, he's worried that fact. The, the funny thing is that he he wants to say that it's almost as though he wants to say that like crowds are fine. You know, like mm -hmm. if you get together with your, your the homies in the crowd, like there's no big deal. But the problem with factions is that they start unifying, right? Mm -hmm. They start to become a people. peoples. Yeah, Even, and that's you, the yeah. thing to be warded off. Due yeah. to no, both exactly eloquence it. and stupidity, that was my favorite part. Oh of my this god, I love eloquence and stupidity was so sick. <laughs> Hobbs had bangers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. He he gets mad at popularity at one point. He says he just says at one point, <laughs> popularity is faction. <laughs> <laughs> because people that are too popular have the ability to compel others to behavior, which is what only a sovereign is supposed to be able to okay, do. Okay, 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 okay. So Hobbes is a nerd. Hobbes is a nerd. Oh, yeah. And you know, when he nerd. went to high school, he's like, these goddamn jocks. Yeah. Look at Dude. them. They're able to yeah. get everyone following them around. You know, <laughs> Hobbes is the guy in the corner in that meme. They don't know only the sovereign gets to decide. And yeah, it's just exactly. like all these yeah. people making out and all that. Just like, mm. yeah, mm. I hate sees all these popular people having like influence. And he's like, man, I am going to come up with a strategically valuable philosophical anthropology that proves that they're not allowed to do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But the thing about yeah, the multitudes true, versus the people argument that I find really funny is that it's amazing the way that he states it, right? He says, the, the mistake that everybody makes is that they talk about the people rising up against the, against the sovereign. Like, That's right, not right. possible. The sovereign right. is the people, right? The actual kind of denizens of the Commonwealth, the people that live there, the populace, like they are just individuals qua individuals, there, mm. there is no unity that can be ascribed to them. You might be able to say that, I don't know, 4,631 individual people tried to attack a, a building on a certain day or something. But you can't say that the people rose up and tried to engage in that action. That's what you were saying, Gil, right? You can't right. ascribe an act to the multitude. The right. only collective body that can have acts ascribed to them and hence have the kind of unity of an agent is the state. Everything the else is just yeah. an individual. Okay, 
So I wanna I wanna like you know, push this a little further because this is really interesting to me. So what's going on with Hobbes' argument is basically he he's like, yo, <laughs> you know, this is like a motherfucking Highlander argument. There can only be one. All right. Yeah, yeah I went Highlander. We're going to the nineteen nineties here. That's Let's the go, pop baby. culture we need. And so I wonder if like with Hobbes <laughs> we can understand this sort of constitutive tension that happens with the state, not just with you know, mm-hmm. the multitude, but you know, why you know, the state might have a problem with you know, um, a religion or something like that. Yeah. You know, the idea that there could actually be a sovereign that's not here that y'all answer to. You know, mm-hmm. you know and, I, and, and I'm interested in thinking about how the state tries to resolve these tensions of, you know, in the, the sort of liberal enlightenment project of allowing there to be freedom of conscience for people that have their religious beliefs. Like, believe all you want, but at the end of the day, obey okay. this. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there can be tensions between like state and religion or state and even capital. If capital is starting to try to uh, design for itself or expand for itself in a way that it doesn't have to follow the laws within a certain territory. And that creates mm-hmm. a kind of bind for the state that, in other words, there mm-hmm. can't be two kings. There can't be right. two mm-hmm. masters. And so how yeah. I think like he's actually designing yeah. the argument to say that that to like prevent that from happening. Like, I think. Right that the argument, so this was published in like before the civil war, I think Locke's second treatise was published after the civil war. Like there's the transition is happening and has been happening in England for like a hundred years. And like England has this like state that's forming. That's like unlike any other state in Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. And it's uniquely centralized and the coercive power that like lords used to have to like whack their peasants with to get them to work harder or whatever, that's not necessary anymore. So there's this like privatization of political power. And then at the level of the state, you need like they don't have to exercise that coercive power anymore because capital like the landowners who've become capitalists can now like do that so like he's trying to like in my opinion he's trying to figure out like in real historical time like how to stop this unruliness from continuing and it's like a fascinating thing because Locke is gonna like transition to a different kind of social contract theory that's like based specifically on property rights because Mm -hmm. like they're like a a shift is so that's why I was kind of saying I feel like he's this like interesting transition figure because that's why he's not a liberal in the sense that we are used to is because he's responding oh, really to transitions good. that like, yeah, it, it's not a liberal yeah. situation yet. He's making it that that's way. So and good. so he's like, he's, he's like telescoping this thing about like needing to control these individuals, but they're specifically landowners, but like he doesn't understand the nature of the property regime that's emerging. Mm. I love this idea of like Hobbes as like sort of like trying to ward off the development of capitalist power as mm-hmm. an actually existing alternative 100%. to state authority. Yeah. Yeah. There's an, yeah. in, um, in Leviathan, he's more explicit about this. He's like paranoid about co- merchant corporations, right? Like he mm. doesn't, he calls at one point, he uses that same language, a commonwealth within a commonwealth or there. He says it's like a commonwealth within the bowels of another, <laughs> basically like corporations that get too big and get too powerful. And he gets worried that like they could even like raise their own security forces. They can mm. even actually like you know, basically become divided. You basically you end up in a situation with divided sovereignty, right? right. Where in, the state has a certain set of powers, and then de facto a kind of merchant corporation or a set of corporations banded together, right? Or a class or an estate ends up functioning as 
a kind of second a second site of sovereign authority and that's not then like neither of them are sovereign you're in civil war then then so he actually thinks like yeah you let capitalism get out of control and you have a kind of organized civil war Mm. It's so wild. And, and like, I, I love that when we have these conversations because now all of a sudden certain debates that happen in other areas of philosophy that I'm not necessarily keyed into, but I hear about them, like, why is that the case? You know, again, this really changes how I think we often think about the state now, which is that the, the state and capital, like in our sort of general uh, parlance, are buddy-buddy. You know, mm-hmm. how often do we talk about the fact that, oh, politicians, they're bought and paid for by mm-hmm. by X. But then you look mm-hmm. at Hobbes and it's like, you know, Hobbes <laughs> is saying that that's not a natural relationship whatsoever. Like, right. you know, these are two uh, mm-hmm. competing players in the game. There's no mm-hmm. actual reason that, you know, state and capital would be one because your state is looking at the capital being like, whoa, whoa, whoa who, who the fuck are you? Like, yo, yeah, you need to get these fuckers doing? to pay taxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I no, mean, literally. he ends up like oh, it's it's yeah. almost like he's already anticipating like the Marxist reversal of Hegel and saying like, no, the state under these conditions becomes an instrument of capitalist power, right? Like, only mm. one of these can be sovereign, mm-hmm. and if it's not checked properly, like the state will become beholden to capitalist power. Yeah, that's why I think he has like a really ambivalent place in the kind of development of bourgeois thinking, because I think that the kind of, like I said, the individual that he that he's trying to construct is an individual that I think is very amenable to a kind of bourgeois social order, deprived of social ties, any kind of community bonds, entirely serialized and, Mm -hmm. you know, passive and disempowered and left to a kind of private sphere. So on the one hand, I think that that serves definitely serves the interests of of bourgeois thought and then the other hand at the level of state power he has like real anxieties about the powers of economic forces economic classes and mm-hmm. um you know commercial entities over over the state his first allegiance is to the state okay so like this is like you know, um i think I've, I've talked to you all before and obviously we, we don't have to go into but i've been reading you know um some friedrich hayek and the reason why i bring that up mm. is like what's interesting in hayek is i can i can see him taking a piece of hobbes and the piece of hobbes is this notion of you know you can't just radically remake human nature that's that's crazy and that's what's happening yeah. with these factions these factions are saying actually you too can be a sovereign. I'm, I don't know. I, for some reason, I just imagine like being a telemarketer there. You too can own yeah. your piece of the puzzle. This is not a pyramid scheme. It's a multi-level marketing. Yeah. Anyway, but you. Know, but for Hayek, it is not the state overall. For Hayek, he's like, yo, look, no, the, the market needs to work this out. And what these crazy, mm-hmm. you know, socialist communists want to do is they act like you can just construct human nature willy-nilly. They act like right. they can be the ones who come for the throne. And so obviously Hayek is way, way, way down the road. But, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, that, I said taking a piece of Hobbes because the piece of Hobbes that isn't taken is that, you know, Hobbes has made his choice about who's supposed to be in the driver's seat. It's not the market. I imagine mm-hmm. the market's too anarchic for Hobbes, probably, if we oh, could extrapolate sure. that, that, that argument, beholden to too many fluctuations and crises. While, you know, mm-hmm. the state, you know, not to do that, that annoying thing that, you know, uh, French philosophers do in the 20th century, but the state's literally about stasis. It's about, you know, keeping things like where they need to be, keeping that equilibrium. But, you know, the market is its own type of anarchy, busting things up, bringing things in when it needs and has no loyalty whatsoever 
to any. So Hobbes is like resisting the law of value. He's like, this is not going to turn out well for us at all. (laughs) (laughs) Like what? Like like one? Like once? Yeah, once the sovereign. Does, it does not have the power to arbitrate the different like ways of evaluating like how we all should live. Mm. Real subsumption is going to go down, and we are all going to be subordinated to the law of value. And that, mm. and then Hayek is like, all the way, baby. That's cool. I love it. <laughs> so like, like you promise? Y- yeah, and we like, and we like that. This is really cool. Uh, I'd like to to draw our attention to what seems like a, a maybe a related paradox or contradiction um which is that like because of his like insistence on in the indivisibility of sovereignty the the sort of line of the thought the sort of tendency that it has is toward absolute monarchism right like that's like the sort of most appropriate form of the state because of the way in which it like consolidates all power and authority within like a, literally a single person or or, or it, an absolute parliamentary system mm-hmm. where only or, or the parliament absolute, or the only yeah, the parliament council. has power right yeah. so the he says always the, has the, one man or one assembly of men or has one assembly yeah. right so but i was wondering if I've, I've read a little bit about this other thinker or like commentators on hobson like pointing out that in this text in on the in on the citizen de chive it seems like democracy has a kind of theoretically fundamental status though in terms of like there needing to be something like democratic consensus to form this sovereignty in the first place whereas like in the later leviathan like you know he he wants very badly to to undermine that that idea of there being any sort of even theoretical primacy to a democratic form which on his account would also be like you know inherently points toward faction and you know dissent and so forth is this making sense, this thing that I'm trying to point out? Yeah. I mean, Weird centrality I, to democracy? Yeah. If I'm understanding what you're saying, and maybe this is just, you know, again, a question Owen can help us out with. The sovereign's legitimacy is transferred, right? You you give that over to the sovereign. That, you know, seems to me that the sovereign, at least the story that he tells, the sovereign does not, you know, form the commonwealth simply through conquest, you know, he wants to tell the story of that, you know, one of the ways the Commonwealth comes together, maybe it could, maybe one of the ways is through conquest, but is through the need for security. And so, you know, there has to be a type of ascent of this is what we need to do in order to, to be safe, to feel safe, um, et cetera. And so I'm wondering, like, you know, then how does the sovereign have legitimacy? Like, you know, in other words, I'm saying, why can't the people withdraw the legitimacy away from the sovereign if the sovereign really starts sort of fucking up, breaking laws, etc.? Well, first, in his view, the sovereign can't break laws because this, the yeah. laws are just the will of <laughs> right. the sovereign, right? Which is, you know, that's, that's yeah, that's he's the like the sovereign is like not accountable to civil laws because then it would just be right. accountable right. to itself. Yeah, and that's the sovereign. Crazy. That makes sovereign no sense. Is, yeah. Yeah, internal division. Exactly. It's the one figure who still possesses the right of nature, right? The right to all things, to do anything by any means they they choose. But the reason why legitimacy can't be, why the legitimacy or let's say the kind of consent of the governed can't be revoked is because it it doesn't come from an act of consent in the way we normally think about it. It comes from Mm. the fact that you are protected. Like Mm -hmm. literally for him, he talks about this kind of protection obedience relationship. As long as the protection, as long as the 
you know, the realm is being protected, right? Or as long as an individual is being protected by the state, then they have basically accepted the benefit of the of the of the you know of the arrangement. And so by accepting that, you know, he says there's all these different ways you can be a signatory to something, right? Like, yes, of course, you can just say, I agree, I authorize, or I I consent to this, you know, system of authority. Or there's other ways that you can agree to it, like other signs you could give or or things like that. And so if, if you, for him, if you've accepted the kind of benefit, which is the protection, then you automatically are in a position of oblig- of political obligation, which is the obligation to, to obey, right? What if the state starts failing? That, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, the cool thing is, though, the reason why I wanted to think why uh, Bishop Bromall back in the day in Hobbes' time called Leviathan the rebel's catechism <laughs> uh, is because, of course, the question is immediately raised, what happens if you're not being protected? Like what, obviously, and for Hobbes, if he's going to be intellectually honest, and he is, you know, he says, then, then you have no more obligation of obedience. Right. So, so in, individuals do not have an obligation to obey states that do not keep them protected, that do not keep them safe. That is incredible because, you know, that means that like, you know, if we were to take that in, in our contemporary moment, if one were to judge that, you know, the state no longer keeps you safe, that the state actually is the thing that's not just a danger to you, but let's just put it this way. I imagine if maybe if Hobbes was going to be as strict as possible, doesn't even keep you safe from other forces from outside the state, you know, whether it's um, uh, other national enemies mm-hmm. or I imagine even uh, forces within the bounds of the mm-hmm. state, mm-hmm. then you owe nothing to the state anymore, right. which is mm-hmm. different than the type of argument that says, you know, even if the state fucks up, you're just gonna have to wait until the next election to render your judgment. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. the state still is daddy, even if it's a right. bad daddy. But you know, I'm saying you get to kick daddy out. If daddy's not doing his job, then daddy fucking up. Bye. Or you get to try. Yeah. He also has has these weird moments where he like says things about how like there are certain rights that kind of are intransferable. Um, and these are mm. these have to do almost always with like self-defense. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, one of the examples that he gives, which I think is fascinating, is like, you know, you are agreeing when you're a part of the civil state to accept punishments if you break the civil laws. And that could mean up to the point of them executing you. He's like, but you can't expect anyone to agree that they won't fight back. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, you've agreed to be executed if you break the laws, but you can try to kill them when they come for you. Like, yeah, and the, that's the, never going to go away. And the reason for that is pretty simple, right? The only reason you gave up your kind of right to do whatever you want, your right to self-preservation you know, by any means, the only reason you did that was for self-preservation. So the minute that self-preservation, you know, comes into question, you have this kind of retained right, this right that you have retained as you've entered civil society, which is the right to defend yourself by any means that you, you know, that you choose. Um, yeah. <laughs> My man almost said by any means necessary as if he was Malcolm I, X over here. I, 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 know, I don't think I have the right to say I, yeah, that's, that's too powerful, too powerful of a statement. Too powerful. No, but I do, I, I do think about groups that, form, that groups that do form for self-defense, right? And the kind of Hobbesian justification that they have. Hobbes very, is very clear that if you are not safe, then you can look around and whoever it is that can keep you safe, whatever group it is that can keep you safe, they're now your sovereign. I wanted to just very quickly point out that that first law of nature that we were talking about before had a second part to it that we did not mention. 
and we should keep it here in mind. He says, the first law of nature is to seek peace when it can be had, when it cannot, to look for aid in war. That's the first law of nature. Like, that's exactly. built into the ground floor of the thing. Yeah, if the peace cannot be had, then basically form militant factions and start <laughs> fighting. Okay, uh, the, the, la the last like, thing that I really wanted to touch on here is that like reading this as, as a leftist and why Hobbes is, in, is, is, is cool to read as a leftist, is in, I think about it in the same way that you know, Gramsci, I think, first, and then later Althusser has this argument about how to read Machiavelli, who is the prince for as a text. And he's like, actually, this is basically like a revolutionary pamphlet, right? Like it's, a, it's teaching the people what they need to know about how this thing actually works. And I do not think that Hobbes is trying to do something subversive in this way. But there are these moments in the text where it's like, he's just given us a roadmap, a roadmap for like revolutionary activity. And so, for instance, in the chapter on causes dissolving a commonwealth, he's like, you know what? You know what we really need to make sure that people don't have is hope of winning. Right. And if they have hope of winning, then, you know, then they might start trying to overthrow the government. It's a seditious like, well, I'm so glad you pointed to that. And he says, there are four things. I love this. He's like, there are four things that are indispensable to this hope. Numbers, tools, by which he means literally weapons, mutual trust, and leaders. leaders. And he says, if these four things are available to men who can barely tolerate their present conditions and who measure the rightness of their actions by their own judgment, the only other thing needed to create sedition and turmoil in the Commonwealth is someone to rouse them and incite them to action. And like... If you inflect that sentence the proper way, that is like a call <laughs> to arms against the state. It's awesome. It's yeah, so interesting. And this is not like a pure kind of juristic reflection on the structure of the state, right? Like Hobbes asks like real material questions about how forces form like within a, within a, a body politic that are able to actually you know, have the power to actually challenge it, have the power to actually destroy it. And he gets like, you know, he gets into like pretty meticulous detail about how it is that people build power, the kind of power that threatens, you know, that threatens order. And in that way, that's why Brahmal, another reason why Brahmal was right, I think in some ways that, that, uh, that, that Leviathan and De Chive too is a kind of rebel's catechism. Like you said, a mm -hmm. kind of manifesto. If you read it a certain way, if you read it in reverse, right? If you put the album on backwards. <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> it's right. It's it is actually really illuminating in terms of what it is, what constituted power finds threatening and what it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I also think it brings us you know, back to the question of norms. This allows mm. us to say something really concrete about how we judge what the state ought to do. So mm -hmm. even if the sovereign is not beholden to civil laws, the sovereign actually isn't above normativity. And that normativity mm. is, you know, insofar as you protect these people, you you require their obedience. If you don't live up to that, you too bad, so sad, you got to go. <laughs> and so that's yeah. really fascinating that he builds in a, a way of, you know, critiquing sovereign. Obviously, critiquing sovereign here is rebellion. It isn't saying, hey, <laughs> you'll stop that. But that, yeah. you know, this isn't a freewheeling sovereign. He is not making mm -hmm. an argument in terms of the sovereign gets to do whatever. It, the sovereign can do whatever it wants at its own peril. I guess at its own peril, mm -hmm. exactly. At its own peril, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why the, the language he uses for that is he talks about like what a prudent sovereign would do, right? So he almost introduces these kind of prudential duties or prudential norms that – Okay, they're not as binding. They're not moral norms, right? They're not. It's not like the sovereign is evil if they do a bunch of bad shit. But look, if you engage in these types of behavior, or more importantly, you allow these types of 
these types of behavior to go on in your state, you're going to be fucked at some point. <laughs> See, Hobbes is sovereign is beyond good and evil. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's very, it's very advanced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. If you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. And give us five-star reviews and leave us a comment on your podcast app. It helps a ton. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.